Well, we are in the Gospel of John. We are uh, wrapping up today the last sermon. Thank you, Evan, to grab that from you. Appreciate you. I realized 10 seconds before I came up here to preach that I didn't have any water to drink and, and my throat's going to give out. So thank you, Evan. Appreciate you doing that. We're, we're wrapping up this upper room section. And uh, it, it's, it's the night before Jesus is betrayed and arrested and crucified and then ultimately raised. We're heading toward Good Friday and Easter. They're coming right up here in just a few weeks. So I want you to be thinking and praying about who God might have you invite to join us on Easter Sunday. But we're going to look at a prayer that Jesus prayed, a prayer that his followers would be unified. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to John chapter 17. Renee, are you doing our scripture reading for us today? All right, I'm going to invite Renee to read these verses for us. I'm going to invite you to open your hearts to hear from God's word today. The word of God. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved, loved them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. God, help me to communicate truthfully and helpfully today. And God, I pray uh, this would be an opportunity for us to experience a deeper level of that oneness, that unity that you call us to, that you want for us, that you have for us. I pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. You know, unity is kind of one of those words uh, that depending on your personality type and depending on your experiences, it can kind of elicit a, like a fist pump, yeah, or it can kind of elicit an eye roll, okay, unity, right? Uh, It's one of those words, actually, that people use, and they might mean widely different things. Uh, Just driving here to the high school this morning, I was behind one of those cars that had the big, uh, the coexist stickers on it. You guys know what I'm talking about with the coexist stickers? Uh, You know, and it's got, you know, all the different symbols. It's got the crescent star. It's got a cross. It's got a Jewish. I didn't realize that actually had a pentagram in it. That was new. I was looking at it more closely today. That was new to me. Uh, But the, the whole idea of kind of unity just being, hey, I'll tolerate you, you tolerate me, let's not get in each other's business, let's kind of have a a slightly distant relationship where we're not hostile to each other, and there's something to be said for that. I mean, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to say like, hey, how about we just kind of, you know, not be jerks to each other. I think that's okay. Uh, I also uh, stumbled across the, the, the classic uh, John Lennon song, um, Imagine, right? Imagine there's no heaven, all that, that whole song. And the, the, the line at the end of the chorus, and the world will be as one. 
And you kind of just get this picture rather than like an arm's distance sort of tolerance. You kind of get this picture of like everyone like holding hands around a fire, singing Kumbaya, you know, just love, just love pouring out. Like, well, what do you, what do you, you got rid of all the beliefs. And so now the world can be one, right? Cause like in that song, he says, imagine there's no heaven, no hell. Imagine there's no religion, all those sorts of things. Just get rid of any beliefs. And then, yeah, it's real easy to get along, right? Um, just have no opinions. Uh, I also, last month I read the book, um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Have you guys ever read that book? I feel like there are some people out there who, instead of realizing that was a novel, thought that it was like a playbook to follow. Uh, it's kind of a scary book, but the idea of like, well, we're all unified because we just kind of drug everybody, control everybody, and force everybody, right? Unity, for some of you, unity feels like this forcible, smash everyone into uniformity, right? Like unity is this wide-ranging thing. And the world talks about it, and the culture talks about it, and we read books about it, and we sing songs about it, and can't we all just get along and... Rodney King said back in the 90s, and, but part of that quote that people sometimes miss is, you know, we're all stuck here on this planet for a while. Couldn't we find a way to work it out? What's the answer? What's the solution? Here's, here's the big idea. I actually have two big ideas. Is that okay? I have two big ideas today. The first one is just my pragmatic side coming out, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it out there, and then I'm going to move on to the real big idea, which is number two. The big idea number one is this. With Jesus, unity is really hard to achieve. Without Jesus, pretty much impossible, <laughs> okay? Uh, with Jesus, it's really hard. I mean, this is Jesus the night before his crucifixion, and he's praying that the followers, his followers would be united, would be one. And if it's as hard as it is for us Christians to get along, we have the Spirit of God. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. Do you guys know what I'm talking about sometimes? It's hard for Christians to get along. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, all right. I've heard some rumors of people out there on the internet sometimes fighting. With Jesus, it's really hard to achieve. Without Jesus, it's basically impossible. I read an article from the New York Times, a link to it up on the website this week, but they said that political scientists found, this is a 2018 study, they found that the United States of America is more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War, and the initial decade of Reconstruction. One in six Americans, one in six Americans has stopped talking to a family member or close friend just because of the 2016 election. Okay, so, so I, I'm, going to, I'm going to focus today because I only got so much time and you're the only ones here. I can't fix the world, but I can talk to you who are followers of Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus. And I can say, all right, let's, rather than talking about being unified with the whole world, what if we just started in the household of faith? What if we said, hey, we Christians, we Christians, let's set such an example of love and grace and reconciliation and forgiveness and unity so that like Jesus said, even though the world doesn't know him, they might see our unity and be desirous of it. So here's the real big idea for today. Get that one out of the way. This, this is the real big idea. Jesus deeply cares that his followers are unified. It has implications for the world, but the starting point is in the family of God. Charles Spurgeon uh, commenting on this section of scripture, he said, it's significant that the Savior should in his last moments 
not only desire the salvation of all his people, but should plead for the unity of his saved ones. That being saved, they might be united. It was not enough that each sheep should be taken from the jaw of the wolf. He would have all the sheep gathered into one fold under his own care. He was not satisfied that the members of his body should each of them be saved as a result of his death. He must have those members fashioned into a glorious body. I mean, think about this. This is the end of the prayer. This is the end of the upper room discourse. This is right before Judas arrives to betray him with a kiss. This is right before he goes to stand a mock trial before Pilate and other uh, Jewish officials and Roman officials. This is right before he's going to be lashed and beaten and spit upon and crucified. What is it that's on Jesus' lips? What is it that's on his mind at the last minute? I want my people to not only be saved, but to experience the kind of closeness Father, that you and I experience. What an amazing thought that is. So I want to define unity biblically. I want to define unity, not just kind of a vague general idea of unity, but I want to define unity from the gospel of John, from the words of Jesus himself. And so we're going to start with some foundations for unity. And the first one is this, that God is unity. In fact, God is tri-unity. The teaching of the Christian church since the earliest time, since wise men and women were able to sit down and think and write and examine the scriptures is that this is the truth about God. There is only one God. We just sang about that a moment ago. Amen. There is one God. And that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if you say, wow, that's really hard to understand, you're right. It is really hard to understand. I believe it was St. Augustine that said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your salvation. If you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your sanity. But the idea is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which when you start to understand that, even just the, the surface of that, it starts to make more sense about teachings in the Bible that say things like God is love. The nature of love is that there must be an object. Love requires someone or something to love. If God is triune, if God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that means that God is love within the members of the Trinity. And that's also really good news for us because it means that God doesn't need us. He's not incomplete without us. Like, oh, so many romantic comedies and the whole, you complete me, my love, sort of a thing. That is not in the nature and the character of our God. He needs nothing. He is completely satisfied within who he is. But do you know what's amazing? He wants us. He loves us. And the persons of the Trinity are completely united in thoughts, aims, goals, action, love. John 17, 22 and 23 from our scripture reading today. He says, he's praying, he says, the glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So the unity that we're to, we're to model, we're to live out is based on the unity that Jesus and his Father have. I in them and you in me so that they may become perfectly one. That's an even bigger deal, right? 
perfect, not just so that they may have kind of some semblance of unity, no, perfectly one. And so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So the foundation for unity is God himself, okay? Trinitarian, Orthodox, Nicene Christianity, get on it, it's good. Number two, a foundation for our unity is that in the gospel, we have been unified, we have been united, we have been reunified with God. So the gospel is a unity story. In, 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 uh, if you go back to chapter 10 of, of, of John's gospel, he says this thing. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How good is that news, friends? That Jesus comes and pursues us when we were hard-hearted and wandering and rebellious and foolish. Jesus comes after us. He dies on a cross in our place for our sins. He, he gives his life in place of ours. And then he rises again on the third day to offer us this, this incredible promise of eternal life that Jesus conquered over death. What's amazing though is the very next verse, he says, so all that stuff about, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And again, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So is your salvation secure? You better believe it. Verse 30, I and the father are one. So your salvation, the fact that you are a Christian, the fact that you are forgiven by God is actually in and of itself contingent on the unity that's present in the persons of the Trinity. You're not, it's not like Jesus is saying, hey, Father, please, will you let me go down and save them? Sometimes this is a, a really, really bad caricature that you'll hear out there in the world of like, well, you know, that Old Testament God, you know, the Father, he's really mean and cranky and all that stuff about, you know, judgment and commandments and stuff. But then Jesus, the Son, he's really nice and loving and just so full of grace and mercy. And, you know, he had to like basically twist the Father's arm and say, would you please let me go down there and, and offer them a little bit of grace or whatever? That's just nonsense. First of all, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. Second of all, I've been reading through the Old Testament lately. There's a lot of mercy in there. And third, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's the foundation of your salvation. The unity that's present in the people, in the persons of God, and the unity that we are offered to be reunified and reconnected back to God. R.C. Sproul says that the whole of salvation, the whole of redemption from beginning to end is Trinitarian. Here's another thing about the gospel. God is unified. We are unified to God. But in the gospel, God is unifying us with others as well. John 17, 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus, on that night, he's praying. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for the 11 remaining faithful disciples. But he says, I'm not just praying for these 11. I am praying for each and every single person who's going to believe in me through the message that they go and speak. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus prayed for each and every single one of us? Wow. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I'm on a bit of a, just kind of a theological study kick right now, studying about the way that the Old and New Testament work together and the law and the, and grace and how all that. I'm reading a handful of different books from a wide variety of different authors. But this idea being that inherent in the nature of the gospel is this reconciling effect and the, and the, 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 the pages of the New Testament, really the whole New Testament, is all about how are Jews and Gentiles supposed to get along and follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, together. It's funny, I got to hang out a little bit with uh, friend Rabbi Matt last night and, and, and he'd said to me, you know, right now being Jewish, he's Jewish, and then he tells people that he follows Jesus. People today are always like, how can you be Jewish and follow Jesus? And he's like, what's really hilarious is the entire New Testament is asking the exact opposite question. How can you be Gentile and follow Jesus? Jesus was Jewish. All of his followers were Jewish. The first few years of the, the Jesus movement's all Jewish. And then these Gentiles want to get let in. Oh no, they do terrible things like eat clam chowder and, uh, you know, what do we do about that? And they're, they don't, they don't wash the right ways. They don't even celebrate our, our holidays. And they, do they even know about Purim? What if we start booing Haman and people are going to be like, what are you doing? Like, that's what the New Testament's about. I just paraphrase. I save you some reading time. No, I didn't. Just read the Bible. Read it for yourself. But keep that in mind as you read it. The idea is that because of our sinfulness and our fallenness, we are not only broken in relationship from God, but we're broken in relationship with each other. The fall of man, the story happens in Genesis chapter three. Mankind sins against God and they are removed from the presence of God's holiness in the garden. Have you read Genesis four? What happens in the very next chapter? Cain murders his brother Abel. So the immediate effects of sin and rebellion is that we're separated from God and we're alienated from our fellow man. There's hostility, there's enmity. And you guys know the big three, right? The big three that divide us? Gender, race, money. Those are the big three. Men and women fighting against each other. Jew and Gentile, black and white, however we want to divide on those racial lines and rich versus poor. And isn't it amazing that Apostle Paul and others write things like, hey, in Christ, there is no male nor female. There is no Jew nor, nor Gentile. There is no slave nor free. That's, that's economic. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our standing before God, every single person is given equal access to God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean there's no difference between races. It doesn't mean that there's no difference between the genders. There's all sorts of beautiful things about the diversity that God's created in the world. But when it comes to the gospel itself, at the core of the gospel message is we are all made one in Christ Jesus. And then number four on this, our, our unity is the proof that we belong to Jesus. Jesus said it, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's an old Christian song. I don't even exactly know where it comes from. Some of you might think it's cheesy. I listened to a few versions of it this week. Uh, It's a little cheesy, but... It's the, the, we are one in the spirit. We are one by his blood. They will know we are Christians by our love. How are we doing, church? 
How, how are Christians doing with that? So this is a, a, maybe a better foundation for unity. God is unity. The gospel is that we're unified to him. We're unified to each other. And this is the proof. Unity is really what Jesus lays forward is this is the evidence and the proof that, that we belong to him. Let me just say, like I mentioned a minute ago, here, here's what unity is not. Unity is not Brave New World, like I read, where you just force everybody to get along. Parents uh, with, with young children, be honest. Have you ever, well, you have to get along with your kids. You ever pulled that one out? You just have, come on. I know you, I know I'm not the only parent. Well, you just, you got to get along. Go, go play, go. What's the, the get along shirt where you make the kids like wear the same shirt? Like weird things like that go out there, right? Just going to force everyone to think the same way. Force everyone. That's, that's, that's uniformity. That's not biblical unity. That's not how Jesus speaks about what true unity is. Nor is it, as I joked a little bit earlier, the fireside kumbaya, everyone just kind of empty your brains of any thoughts and just kind of be passive and there's no substance. There's no, that's not biblical unity. Neither of those are biblical unity. Do you know why? It's missing a really key thing, which is it's the absence of any sort of conflict. And I know that that idea of conflict for some terrifies you, but the Bible says like in Proverbs 27, like iron sharpens iron, one person sharpens another. Not all conflict is bad. Not all sparks are bad. Sparks in your barbecue grill is real good. You can make amazing things with that, right? Sparks in your like, like living room couch, not so good. When there's that foundation of unity and love and, and commitment, we've both been saved by Jesus. Hey, let's, let's talk. Let's challenge each other. Let, we can let some sparks fly and it's okay. Let's talk about what gospel unity really is, okay? Number one, the gospel unity has truth. Gospel unity does have truth. In John 17, Jesus prays, God, Father, would you sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. Does Jesus care about truth? Absolutely he does. Romans 16, the apostle Paul gives this instruction. He says, I urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. That's a really, really interesting sentence because he does not say, hey, I want you to watch out for those who create divisions and just, he's like, just ignore what they're saying. Try to find a way to get along. Don't worry about it. He says, no, these people are saying things that are contrary to the gospel message. Avoid them. Such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Listen, friends, without substance, you can't have real unity. You can't have real unity if there isn't some substance to the conversation. So for some of you, you're, you're more conflict averse. You don't like conflict. For some of you, you just have a natural heart for unity and for people to get along. I'm kind of that way. I try to be a bridge builder. I try to be a unifier. And in my most uh, uh, kind of self-focused moments, I could be a real people pleaser. And I could be a, well, I'm just gonna kind of do whatever people want to make it so that they'll like me or not dislike me. Friends, Jesus doesn't leave us that option. Real unity must have some sort of truth, some sort of substance to it. Now, here's the good thing. Some of you think, well, if you start studying and thinking about theology and doing all that stuff, isn't that going to lead to pride? I'm convinced that real studying, real theology, real thinking should lead the exact opposite. It should lead to humility. 
should lead to humility, which is the second ingredient for true gospel unity. John 13, if we back up to the beginning of this whole upper room thing, Jesus took off his robe, washed the disciples' feet, and then he asked them, he says, you know, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and and that's good. You're speaking right. That's what I am. See, (laughs) Jesus didn't say like, oh, no, 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 don't call me teacher. No, I am teacher and Lord. There's some substance there. There's some content there. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Jesus is the most right person who has ever lived. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? Like every word he ever spoke was pure, just unfiltered, you know, I was going to say hundred proof truth, but I don't want to say that in church. Uh, you know what I mean? Like just pure truth. And yet Jesus said, I have washed your feet. Jesus had incredible humility. The apostle Paul agrees in Romans. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble, with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, if possible, live at peace with everyone. I mean, Paul's a realist too. He knows it's not going to be possible. Sometimes when I'm meeting with people in a counseling sort of situation or a marriage counseling or something like that, I'll just say like, hey, have you done everything that you possibly can before God to make this work. Sometimes if we're honest, oh no, I haven't. I've been proud in my own eyes. I think that, that there's, a, there's a tension there between that truth and that humility, right? I always love the old saying, it's, it's attributed to Socrates, not sure if he's the one who actually said it or not, but Socrates is quoted as saying, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize, the less I know, right? Like, I just don't know that much. So you study, you learn, we have substance, we have truth, but we also have a lot of humility. There's a few more elements though. Number three is this, goals. Gospel unity has gospel goals. Jesus said, I want them all to be one, Father, as, as you, Father, and me, and I'm in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So at the heart of Jesus' prayer for unity is that we would go out and we would make a difference in the world. So this is why I said, like, we we can't just go out and force the world to be unified, but there is an impact. It has implications for the world. Like at the baseline, just at the baseline, what are some things that maybe we could all agree, you know, Jesus would want, the Father would want for us to have as our goals for unity? How about, how about people would meet Jesus? You guys think that's one of those, like, goals, okay? How about um, Jesus would want us to live, like, godly and upright lives that are healthy for us, honoring to him, good for those around us. You guys think that's one of those goals? I think so. Do you think that God would want us to have, um, you know, arguing about the mode of baptism, uh, like as one of those goals, right? Now I'm ready to argue. I'll have that conversation. We'll let the sparks fly, but we got to understand like there's some priorities, right? People meet Jesus, People to live lives of, of love and care for each other. People to, to go serve the poor. People, like things that are just kind of basic goals, gospel goals. One of the reasons why in our country we don't have a lot of unity right now is I don't think we have a lot of goals. We don't have the foundation, but we don't have a lot of goals that we're all saying like, yeah, let's, let's do this thing. Or we have differing goals or competing goals. And actually even deeper, another level deeper is gospel motives. 
Jesus prays, Father, I want those who you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Do you see all the motives that Jesus talks about there? I want them to be with me. I want them to see my glory. You have loved me and you want to share that love. Even if we could all agree on the right, on the right goals, if we don't have gospel motivations, our goals are going to go awry. You could have two people in the church and they say, hey, we need to care for the poor. Great goal. One person is wanting to do it from a motivational place of saying, I just, I want to love and serve people. But there's another person who's doing it from a motivation of, I want people to look at me and pat me on the back and tell me how good of a job I'm doing. And maybe they wouldn't say it out loud, but that's the motivation. Do you imagine that unity might be kind of hard when people are coming at it with these widely different motives? God cares not just about our actions, but the motives that that go underneath it. I might even go so far as to say God cares more about the motives and the heart being transformed so that the actions that come out are truly in line with his word. You can go serve the poor and you can do it from a really ugly heart. You can go tell people about Jesus and you can do it from a really selfish motive. God wants our hearts and our motives to be transformed. That will lead to actual unity. And then lastly, Definition of unity is gospel perseverance. Jesus prays, I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world. Thanks, Jesus. Uh, I'm coming to you. But then he prays. He gives us the spirit. Holy Father, protect them by your name. The name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. So what Jesus says is, hey, I'm going to go be with the Father. I'm sending you the spirit. Keep working at this. Okay, moment of honesty. How many of you have ever experienced a moment where you've gotten tired of trying to be unified with someone? Okay, I tried, Lord. I said some nice things. I gave them some flowers. I was real kind for like a week. And we're still not unified. Like, yeah. True unity takes some perseverance. True unity takes gospel substance, gospel humility, gospel goals, gospel motives, and then you wrap all that up in a nice big bow of keep at it. Keep at it. Keep going. What's, what is our life? In, in, in the light of eternity, what is our life? You're telling me that you can't keep working towards unity, that you can't keep trying to love your Christian brother and sister for another four or five decades until that day that either Jesus returns or you breathe your last and see him face to face. You can do it. You've been given the spirit of God. You've been given the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You can try again. You can do it again. God loves you. You've been unified with him. Your eternity is secure. Your life is pretty short when you consider it in the light of eternity. It's going to be all right. Keep trying. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe you're not quite ready. Maybe you need to take a break for a year or two, but then you can try again. Oh, maybe the world is just getting more and more hostile and man, it feels harder and harder to be a, a Christian in the world. It's okay. What's the big deal? What's the worst thing that somebody could do? Kill you? And then you go to heaven and be with Jesus. Awesome. Like, I don't mean to sound so flippant about it, but really think about it in the light of eternity. If what I'm saying is true, if Jesus died and rose again, says you get eternal life, 
Peace forever, joy, rest, care in the arms of the Savior. Guys, we can keep going. Don't give up. It's all right. It's going to be okay. We've got a Savior who loves us and who conquered over death. What an awesome thought that is. A couple of quick things to, to think about here. Some challenges to unity. One of the challenges to unity is we've got a wrong definition sometimes, okay? And I've already said that. If you've got a wrong definition of unity, don't let the world and the culture tell you what unity looks like. They're terrible at it. Don't buy their definition, okay? You know, I'm real thankful for, you know, you know, celebrities getting up and doing a fundraiser for whatever tragedy. We all just need to come together. I don't, I'm not buying it, okay? Listen to the music, send the money to the Red Cross, whatever, it's fine. But don't let them define what unity looks like for you. Let the word of God define what true unity looks like, okay? Another challenge to unity is just the idea of diversity. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like God made us real different, right? You could take two people who, let's say, let's say you took two men who are about the same age, about the same income level, and, uh, uh, you know, about the same, whatever, you know, just lots and lots of similarities. And even those two guys, same skin color, same everything. And they might fight because they're very different from each other, right? Like diversity is, is amazing. Did you know that God is both loving and merciful and just and righteous and some of you, you know, say, I like to hang out with those people who are like, they express that side of God that's, you know, the love and the mercy. And I don't like hanging out with those people that express the more kind of righteous side of God. It's like, there are people who are like really good at like remembering rules and things like that. And <laughs> you know what? They're actually displaying an image of God. Diversity, even, even the good side of diversity, which is a beautiful thing that God has woven this, this tapestry of different people, different nationalities, men and women and different perspectives. And we would do this this way and I would do this thing this way. That's just challenging even if it wasn't for the presence of sin, right? So remember, we're one body with many parts. Not everyone's an eye, not everyone's an ear, not everyone sees things the same way. We need to utilize and to borrow, if I can use that word, the strengths and the perspectives of others. But it is a challenge to unity. It just makes it hard. And then obviously there's things like pride, that's sin, thinking that you're better than someone. And oftentimes, it, it's, it's, oftentimes, at least for me, pride doesn't come out where I say things like, wow, I am so much better than them. You don't say that out loud. You don't think that consciously, but it comes out in small ways. What is wrong with them? Why would they do, you guys know what I'm talking about? Am I preaching? Am I meddling yet? Fear, right? Fear pulls us back. Fear keeps us from having unity. Oh, I don't want to go to that prayer night tonight because what if there's some of those like weirdo Christians who are going to be praying in tongues and I don't want to deal with that, right? Like it's fear. <laughs> I hear you, Jerry. If any of you weirdo Christians are praying in tongues, come find me. I'll be in the front right corner tonight. So, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, I just, I'm kind of afraid of that or I don't know. I've, I've, never, I've never talked with a Presbyterian before. What are they like? You know, it's like just... <laughs> We can, we can give place to this fear when we don't realize just how truly secure we are in Jesus Christ. We can give place to fear like, well, hey, we might disagree and that might be okay. And then just apathy. For some of you, the, the, just the challenge to true unity is like, I just don't want to. That sounds like a lot of work. 
Can I just say to you, this is the work that Jesus has given to us. Why else would he pray for it on the night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion? I pray, Father, that you would unify our people. Yeah, it, like I said, it's hard. I'm not trying to um, spin some sort of fairy tale. This will lead to some of the more uncomfortable conversations you're ever going to have. Some of the more challenging, you're going to have to check your heart. You're going to have to check your pride. You're going to have to check your tongue, your digital Facebook tongue. So maybe it's just easier to not engage at all. Well, friends, this is what Christ has called us to. If Christ could leave the glory of heaven to give his life for us, maybe we could set aside our fears and our prides and our prejudices and get to know someone and love them and care for them the way that Christ has loved us. I got good news for you, though. I got good news for you. The good news is we already are unified in Jesus. And this one's a little bit interesting, but I'll, I'll, I'll close with this quote. We already are unified with Jesus. If you read the New Testament, in particular, the letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul will say things like, hey, um, he'll say, hey, you should not go and, and be with a prostitute because you're already joined with Christ and you would not want to join Christ in that way with a prostitute. He'll, he'll say things like, hey, you already are loved and forgiven. So don't, don't walk in these sinful ways. Hey, you, you've been redeemed. You are a new creation in Christ. One of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that everything that Christ has is already ours. And we're learning how to apprehend and to take hold of it all in Christ. So the truth is, the reality is we already are unified in Christ. You and I are just trying to learn how to live that out and work it out. This type of unity is ours in Christ. The question is, will we live in it? Again, R.C. Sproul says uh, this. He says, I am sure that God is grieved by all of our disunity. But I don't think that we are still waiting for this request Jesus made to the Father to come to pass 2,000 years later. In actuality, this prayer was answered because everyone who is in Christ is in union with him and therefore in union with one another. Oops, you already are united. Those speaking in tongues people and the Presbyterians. We're all, if we've trusted in Christ, we are already united. Maybe even a Presbyterian who does speak in tongues. That would be neat. I want to meet that person. The communion of saints that is spoken of in the Apostles' Creed is real and it transcends every conceivable boundary, denominational, geographic, racial, cultural, and socioeconomic. There already is a spiritual unity of all the saints. We are one with each other as the Father is with the Son, not by virtue of our activities or of our practices, but by the spiritual unity that is wrought by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. To that I say yes and amen. Let us take hold of that which was already purchased for us by Jesus. So friends, look around this room. Look around your community group. Can we practice unity here? Can we gather together for a prayer night tonight and practice unity with people from other churches? When you drive by those churches in your neighborhood, could you pray that God would bless them and that the gospel would flourish in their church as well? Because you know what? I think in that God gets a lot of glory and we get a lot of joy. 
Would you pray with me? God, I ask and I pray that we would be unified. Jesus, I pray that we'd be unified the way that you want us to be, that we would live out the unity that you've already purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that even though we had gone astray and had run away from you, you pursued us. And that in your death and your resurrection, you've broken down that dividing wall of hostility between us and God and between us and each other. And simply, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to take hold of that which is already ours in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his good name. Amen.